Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. This is the Apostle Paul writing, the great Apostle Paul writing to a church community in Corinth, Greece in the first century A.D., so we're, we're, we're reading someone else's mail here. That's what you do when you, when you have the Bible. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church. And we're, we're jumping into the end of the letter here in chapter 15 to see an important thing about Easter and the resurrection. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to this church in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Here's what it says. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Nobody would want that. Verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again. On the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas or Peter, then by the twelve, the disciples. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, at once, of whom the greater part, notice this, remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or passed away. After that, he was seen by James, his own brother. Then by the, all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles. Paul says, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. I know who I am. I know what I've done. This is a big but in verse 10. But by the grace of God. I am what I am. And his, great, his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, it's this gospel that we preach, and it's this gospel in which you believed. This is the word of the Lord, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you on this Easter Sunday morning for the opportunity we have to meditate on and celebrate together with the resurrection, Lord. The fact that you, Jesus, aren't just some historical teacher from the past, but you are the ruling, reigning king of the world. You are alive, and just as you came the first time, you are alive to come again. And so we're here as your people. We're simply those who, like Paul, God, we know who we are apart from you. We know our strengths, and God... um, We're well aware, to some extent, of our weaknesses. We know the the things that we've done. We 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 know what we deserve. We know what we don't deserve. And yet, your grace that's chased us, that's pursued us, that's run after us, even when we weren't running after you, you pursued us. And we're here today because of you, to celebrate you. And so, Jesus, we invite you here. We believe you are alive and present, and you promise that when we gather in your name, you are especially here. 
So would you come, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, would you fill this place and speak to us? That's our prayer in this short time, that we would hear from heaven. We'd hear from your heart and your voice, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So on this Easter Sunday, Easter 2022, I think this is our fourth Easter gathering, and with every year, there is a different direction that we pray about. What are we going to focus on? Certainly, the topic is going to have something to do with the fact that Jesus is alive and that he's conquered the grave. And so for this morning's gathering, as we're here in 1 Corinthians 15 with the verses we just read, I want to preach from the title. If you'd like to take notes, you can write this down. I want to teach today on this topic, the reality of the risen son. The reality of of the risen sun. We gathered here on Friday, Good Friday, and we meditated on the reality of the crucified sun. As the sun sets at Calvary and here this morning, we get to celebrate also the reality, the truth, the fact of the risen sun, that Jesus is alive. Now, this topic here, this idea of the reality of the risen sun is really the way that Paul is trying to get us to think about the resurrection. He wants us to think and understand and perceive the resurrection as not just some sort of optional religious concept or theory. The resurrection, that's that thing that those Christians believe, or that's that thing that we celebrate once a year. But Paul in this passage is trying to take us closer in our understanding of the resurrection as a historical, factual, central reality. Like a real thing that happened. <laughs> like when we say Jesus is alive, we really mean that 2,000 years ago, that tomb really was empty. And light really burst forth. And the resurrection, this impossible in the eyes of man miracle, that a dead man who promised he would come, to back, come back to life did. The reality of the resurrection, the central historical fact of it. Now, 1 Corinthians, this letter here, this mail that we're reading, is one of nine letters that the Apostle Paul will write to churches. There's a total of 13 or so, depending on who you attribute Hebrews to. But nine of Paul's 13 letters, Paul was the earliest pioneer, one of the most strong pioneers and leaders of the early church, the early Christian movement. And he would write letters to different congregations. Um, you know, they... It was kind of, you know, the old school time, so they weren't as trendy like us today where churches have, like, names and stuff. You, like, brand the church, like, soulless church, or, like, you know, anyway, I'm not going to name any more churches. But you get the idea, right? Back then, it was just, like, the church in that place. There was one church, you know? There, it, wasn't, there, it wasn't as commercialized. Um, you were part of the family, and, you know, it wasn't like, I don't like the music here. I'm going to go to the next one. Literally, if you didn't like the music at your church, you're like, i got to move to another town and find a new church. Like, that, that was the idea. And so... By the way, our music was pretty great this morning, wasn't it? I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, uh, Paul, he would write to these churches with encouragements or exhortations. He would write to them to help them out in their walk with the Lord. The Holy Spirit of God actually would be inspiring what Paul was saying. Now, listen to this. As Paul would write these letters, you could really summarize Paul's goal of these letters to one specific target. Paul's aim and goal in writing these letters was to bring the church in some form or fashion, to bring the church community back to the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. 
What, what the Christian faith has been launched from and is sustained by, it's not religious people, it's not us doing good things, it's a message from heaven that says that God loves sinners and he sent his son Jesus to die for them. That message, that gospel, that truth that sustains the faith is what Paul would often try to get the church back to. Now, sometimes in Paul's letters, what he, what he would deal with in the church is a community of people who were adding to the gospel. Like, here's the message, the message of God's love through Jesus, but let's add to it. It's not just repent and believe this good news, but it's do all of these things and then God will accept you. It's really where religion comes from. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. Man's attempt to be good enough to earn God's favor, to earn God's love, to get on his good side, to be worthy of his love through good religious behavior. That's religion. It stands in stark contrast to the gospel. The gospel is not your attempt to reach God, but it's God's successful attempt in reaching man and sending his own son to be the sacrifice for our sins, something we can never do for ourselves. So Paul would write some churches and be like, hey, you're, you're adding to something that doesn't need to, need to be added to. We, we studied on, on Friday, one of the final sayings of Jesus on the cross was what? It is finished. It's finished. There's nothing else for you to add to what Jesus did for you on the cross except your trust and faith and reception of his love and grace. To receive what he's done. And that's not even adding. That's acknowledging what he's done for you. So some churches, that was their issue. They were adding to the gospel. Now, in 1 Corinthians, this church is a little different. The issue that this church was facing around the gospel didn't have to do with addition, but it had to do with subtraction. This community of faith was subtracting the central truth of the gospel, which is that not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he also rose. Now, in Corinth at this time, there was this prevalent false teaching in the community that, that basically said resurrection is never an option. You die and you're done. But this was not just like a material secularist view. This was a religious view that there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then the Messiah that you're worshiping is still dead. If there's no resurrection, then, then, then Jesus isn't alive. And here's what's interesting. In that church, they were like, yeah, we know. But we're still Christ followers. So that was like their Christianity. We're Christ followers. We're followers, you know, much like every other major world religion. We're, we're followers of some past profound dead guy. Jesus. We know the theory and the idea is that he rose, but it's not really possible. So we'll just take his teaching and we'll, uh, we'll also even benefit from the forgiveness of sins thing. That sounds awesome. Let's take that. But they had subtracted what gives the resurrection its Power. So notice this again, what we read. Look at Paul trying to help them come back to the gospel. Like they've taken something away, and he's like, no, you got to put the resurrection back in this story for it to mean anything. He says, again, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you are also saved. He's getting them back to the gospel. If you hold fast to the truth, you've got to hold on to what's true about the gospel unless you believe in vain. He says, for I deliver to you that which I also received. Paul's like, I, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm just the mailman. I'm just delivering the goods. This is the oral tradition from the apostles to the church to our generation here today. 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That Jesus really, as God in the flesh, breathed his last on the cross, making a payment for your sins so that you who are separated from God can be reconciled to God forever. And, that's a big and here, that he was buried. He was put inside of a tomb as a dead man. They ensured that he was dead through thrusting a spear through his side. And despite some really weird, puny, you know, kind of pathetic attempts at discrediting the resurrection, the Roman execution was always successful. Okay? If you were sentenced to die, period, you were going to die. Let alone crucifixion, which is unsurvivable. You die through the form of asphyxiation not being able to exhale. And so this is, this is Jesus. He dies on the cross. He's buried. And this is what happened, Paul is saying. Here's the reality. He also rose again. He was dead, but three days later, he actually came back to life. It's unprecedented. Jesus comes back from the dead also as the scriptures promised he would. Jesus died for sinners and he rose again. Now, I want you to see what Paul is saying. When you remove the resurrection, Paul says this, you're believing in vain. That's what he says. If the resurrection isn't a reality, if it didn't happen, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You could be getting brunch right now. He says you're believing in in vain. It's a waste of time. It's empty belief is the word vain there. Um, Here's the idea of the resurrection in Scripture. Understand it this way. In Scripture, the understanding is this, and this is just also basic philosophical understanding. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reality of the risen Son, is the linchpin of the Christian faith. There's a lot of different ways you could say that, right? It's the foundation. It's uh, a couple years ago. I was trying to be really creative. You know, Easter Sunday morning, trying to pull out all the stops, so I had a big stack of Jenga here. You guys remember that a couple years ago? That was fun. And I was like, the resurrection's the Jenga piece. And it's that one piece, and ah, everything comes. Okay? Like, that's the resurrection. Now, I was going to use, but I was like, I already used that. I was like, what else can I say? Oh, the linchpin. It's the linchpin. But then I was like, that's one of those things that I'll say, but I won't really know what that means. What's a linchpin? Should I know what a linchpin is? Maybe I should. I'm sorry. Um, here's a linchpin. That's a linchpin. Okay? A linchpin, a linchpin is a pin that goes through the axle on the end of a wheel so that the wheels don't fall off a wagon or a vehicle. Thanks to Google. So a, a linchpin, think about it. This is what keeps the thing together. It's so small, it might seem insignificant, but it, it holds everything together. It's not the big machinery, it's the linchpin. If you remove the linchpin, Everything crumbles. Everything falls apart. And let me say this. It's same is true with the resurrection in the Christian faith. If you remove the resurrection, the Christian faith crumbles. We're wasting our time. Here's what Paul says about this. He goes on to say this in verse, we didn't read this, but look at verse 17. Paul says this. If Jesus didn't, if that's not a historical fact, if 2,000 years ago Jesus did not rise on the third day, your faith is futile. Notice this. You're still in your sins. Because Jesus might have paid for your cross, or your sin, you're in my sins on the cross, but it's like, it's like when payment's given, but then payment has to be accepted. You ever had that embarrassing thing? You're like, I'm sorry, I don't know what's wrong. The chip, what do I do? You know, you ever been there? So this is, this is the same with the, with the cross. 
See, the cross is payments given. The resurrection says payment accepted. That Jesus' death is sufficient. So he says, if, if Jesus isn't alive, you're, you're still in your sins. The, the guy that died for your sins is dead too. He goes on to say, and also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those loved ones of ours that have passed away into the arms of Jesus as we, as we trust, if Jesus isn't alive, that's it. Death has the final word. Because what we really need is someone who can overcome death and then take us further with him. But apart from the resurrection, death is all we have. He'll go on to say, he encourages, like, if this is true, just be a hedonist. Literally. Like, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Paul's like, I mean, you might as well, if there's no resurrection. Just live for pleasure, live for power, live for whatever sort of vague morality you can agree on, I guess. And have as much fun until you die. That's what Paul says. That's really the mindset. He goes on to say this. If in this life, he's talking to Christians, we only have hope in Christ in some ethereal way, a dead Jesus, we are of all men the most pitiable. Isn't that interesting? He's like, if G listen, and this is true. Like, I'll say this as a fact. If right now, Jesus is not alive. If Jesus didn't, guys, do you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought, have you, like, if 2,000 years ago, we, we know historically, there, there's no doubt that Jesus was a historical figure from history. The, even the atheist agnostic debaters today won't even pull that card because there's so much evidence. Really, um, the burden of proof is on the skeptic to try to prove that Jesus didn't exist, and it doesn't work out well for them because he did, right? Um, we know that he lived. We know he had an impact. We know he had a following. But if he didn't come back from the grave 2,000 years ago, we, are, we should be pitied. People should look on us and be like, ooh, that's sad. That's unfortunate. It's kind of cringy, actually. You know, Like they've been doing that every week. They've been living their lives. to. They sing songs. They've just been singing them to the ceiling. There's no Jesus. I mean, that's genuinely how a lot of people, by the way, think. If Jesus isn't alive, I mean, sure, of course you would think that. If Jesus didn't rise... But if he did, if Jesus really rose from the grave 2,000 years ago, it changes everything. Do you realize that? It changes everything. It actually means that, listen, Jesus is God. He said that. Now, anybody can say that. I can say that. Hey, I'm not going to say that. I don't want to get struck by lightning, you know, but... Anybody can make that claim. Hey, I'm God. Jesus and me and the Father are one. We're of the same essence. We're of the same being. Before Abraham was, I am. And, and as Jesus would make these claims of divinity, I'm not just a good man. I'm a God man. As Jesus would make those bold claims, people would look on him and go, okay, anybody can claim to be God, but prove it. That's what they said. Give us a sign. Jesus says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and got regurgitated, he didn't say that. But just as that happened, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth, and in three days he will rise. You'll destroy this temple, he says, but in three days I will rise. Jesus said that his resurrection is going to be the proof of his claims. So if, if Jesus is alive, he's God. Here's the way Tim Keller says it. Um, I usually just say some things, and I'm like, here's what Tim Keller says. Okay. If Jesus rose from the dead then you and I have to accept all that he said. Christianity is true. Every other worldview is a lie. If Christianity is false, it's the opposite. 
if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything of what he said or what I said or what Paul said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching or followers. Sometimes I don't like his followers. I'm, you know, I am one. Sometimes I don't like myself, and I'm a follower, right? But here's the, here's, the, here's the crux. Whether or not he rose from the dead, that's it. It's the lynchman. Now, let, let me say it this way, because I'm speaking kind of negatively about it, like what's at stake if he did or didn't. But can I flip this around and speak to this as good news, which is what the resurrection is supposed to be? I don't want you to think about, you know, did Jesus really rise or am I wrong? I want you to think about, if Jesus really rose, what could that mean for me? If that's true. If that's true, what could that mean for me? What an offer. Tim Keller, again, in his book, The Reason for God, he paints this great picture. He says, you know, if at your house one day you showed up and there was a beautifully put together envelope with your name and address on it. And it wasn't like one of those scammy, spammy ones where they like print handwriting on the thing. Like, I want to buy your house. And you're like, you see your neighbor got one too? You're like, okay. Um, but if, if somebody wrote you and you opened up the letter and it's from some like real, it has this like real legal cred to it. It's got letterhead and the whole thing. And it starts to, and it starts to, to, to write to you and it says, so-and-so, a relative that you didn't know about has recently passed away and you are the family member that they've decided to pass on their wealth and riches to. And they were very wealthy. And they put the person's name there and they said, please contact me at this number to, you know, cash in on your check. You know? And I'm not talking about like the Nigerian prince thing. I'm talking, about, like, I'm talking about something like a little bit more convincing. Now, how many of you guys, if you received that letter, you would be skeptical? You guys are... You guys are impressive if you're not skeptical. You're like, no, that happens all the time. I'm not, it's normal for me. You know? Now, it's true. If someone, hey, you'd be like, ah, but here's the truth. You would look into it. Wouldn't you? Because, listen, it's too great of an offer to ignore. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the same. It's, if Jesus is alive, that's too great of an offer to ignore. There's too much, not just too much to lose, there's too much to gain to pass by the resurrection without giving it at least some serious thought. I'm not even talking about like some in-depth investigation. You can do that. There's great books out there for that. A guy named Gary Habermas is like the leading scholar on this. Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, The Case for the Resurrection. But, but I'm just talking about, have you stopped to ask yourself this question? Did it happen or not? Did it happen or not? Is Jesus alive or not? If he's not, we're wasting our time. If he's alive, it changes everything. Now, I love that in this passage that we read, the Apostle Paul, he's kind of like grinding that point. He's turning up the heat. He's like, you guys got to get this. The resurrection is not optional. It, it's central. It's the linchpin. But what's amazing about Paul's, Paul's message to them is it's not this, like, blind faith call. Like, hey, the resurrection's important. Believe it. Believe it. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't do that. He, he in fact, notice what he does. We, we just read this in this passage. The Apostle Paul goes on to give historical evidence for its occurrence. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't just go, hey, you know, believe in your heart and forget with your mind. Just, you know, take your bed, or your, your brain, take it out of you know, your head and put it in a box and slide it under your bed. It's done. 
he begins to appeal to the intellect. He says, look back on history. And he points out a few key things. He gives us a couple pieces of evidence that point to the reality of the resurrection. Now, it's hard to prove something that happened in the first century, number one, because we weren't there. And number two, there weren't iPhones and selfies and all the wonderful blessings we have in our generation today, right? So you have, what you have instead is you have key practices that his historians will employ to determine the credibility of an event in history. And here are some of those key things from the resurrection as we apply them to some key things of history that I think can help us out. Here's the first piece of evidence that the Apostle Paul gives. He gives something called the empty tomb. He starts here. The empty tomb. He says, Jesus was buried. He was put into a tomb and then he rose again. Well, for that to have actually happened, Jesus can't be in the tomb. It's kind of easy, right? The disciples are going around, they're like, they're going around, they're preaching the gospel, Jesus rose! And if, if like your desire was to snuff out Christianity in the first century, all you would have to do is what? Produce the corpse. Here's Jesus. Sorry, guys, it doesn't work out, okay? It's a theory. Okay, we get it. It's a theory, right? No. In that culture, they were proclaiming the empty tomb, and we see that there was an empty tomb to fall. Let's talk about this for a second. Paul says this, that Christ is buried. Now, where is Christ buried? I want you to understand that Jesus is buried in a public, guarded, sealed tomb. He's not like randomly buried, like, does anybody know where he is? I'm not really sure, but I think he died. No. Jesus had a public execution and everyone knew that his public burial was in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. A specific man, a religious man, said, I want him buried in my tomb. This was the tomb. It was a public tomb. On top of that, because, <laughs> it's kind of funny, like, because Jesus was so adamant about the fact that he was going to come back, the Romans were like, we got we to gotta lock this door from the outside. Anything can happen. We've got to put Roman soldiers there. Their fear was, unless the disciples come and steal the body, which, by the way, um, Romans, hey, you don't have to worry about the disciples coming to steal the body because they're running and hiding, terrified for their lives right now. Okay? They don't want to die. And they think Jesus is dead, and they just wasted their past three years. And, you know, Peter's like, i got to get this fishing thing going again, you know? What can I do? I guess I'll be like a fishing influencer. What can I do? Like, I don't... I mean, this is where they're at. But, but just in case, we got to guard the tomb from the outside. And on top of that, we're not just going to have soldiers standing outside the tomb. We're going to seal the tomb with a two-ton stone. That's going to require a few men, a few, you know, men to actually move this thing. That's where the reports come from. The historical account is this, that that tomb, that public guarded sealed tomb, was visited on multiple occasions by different individuals, and the tomb was found. Here's the report. Here's history. Jesus' tomb has always been empty still to this day. I mean, someone as significant as Jesus, shouldn't we have, if, if he didn't rise, shouldn't we have had like, some location of where his body is? There's so many other great figures from, from history past, even predating the time of Jesus. We know where they are. But this is the report. The tomb was found empty. There wasn't even a body in the tomb. You know what there was? There was a housekeeping-style stack of linens that Jesus left there. He even made his bed, young men. Okay, Jesus made his bed. Okay, That's all they found in there. 
This public guarded sealed tomb was left empty. Now, when you're looking at an event like that from history, there are, you know, I'm just kind of playing the role of historian today. This is stuff that I've studied and really enjoyed. These are just three key things that you can look at to determine the credibility of a historic claim about an event. Uh, the first is multiple attestation. Multiple attestation basically says that there are multiple sources who are attesting to the truthfulness of a historic event. Okay? There's not video back then. There, there's, there's testimony and there's eyewitness account. And, and usually, something, especially like the first century, you know, it's really hard to know what happened in the first century without witnesses. And usually a historian is looking for this. I want you to hear this. A historian is usually looking for two, maybe three people who agree on the same event. And even if their details are wrong, at least we can kind of sift through that and be like, two people ind independently said that happened. I think it happened. With the resurrection, listen to this, just within the first day, you have over six different individuals attesting to the empty tomb. Now, not only, as I said, are there multiple, they're early. This isn't like somebody, you know, 50 to 100 years later being like, I heard the tomb was empty. Let me write about it. This, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, this passage we're reading, this, uh, you know, we know this is scripture, but back then this is a public document. And it's written some like 7 to 15 years after the resurrection. So this is a public document where the case is being made by Paul. And again, if Paul's claiming this, it can be like, no, he didn't rise. There's his tomb. He's in there, okay? And you just snuff out the thing. But here's where it gets even better. You have enemy attestation, which is this. It's not just the scriptures and the followers of Jesus that are claiming the tomb was empty. Everybody knew about it, even the enemies of Jesus. There's this great account in the Gospel of Matthew. After the soldiers were knocked off their feet by these angels, this, you know, this big tombstone turns into like an automatic door. It moves. They're flipping out, and so they assemble with the elders. They consult together, and they agree to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them that his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. So there's no question of whether or not the tomb is empty. All we can do is try to explain away why. Do you see this? We just got to explain away why it's empty. In fact, if you're bored... You can go on the internet, that's a sentence right there, but you can go on the internet and you can look up all the different explanations for why the tomb was empty. There is an argument over the fact that historically it was empty. The question is why? So you have what the early religious authorities popularized, stolen body. It wasn't in there because they took his body. Who? The guys that were running for their life in fear, they came in the middle of the night and they beat up the soldiers. And took the Okay, doesn't work. All right? Here's an interesting one. Swoon theory. You see, here's what happened. Jesus never really died. He was crucified, flogged, beaten, crown of thorns on his head. He was unrecognizable at his death. He was thrust through with a spear, but he just appeared to be dead. And three days later, he got up from that state and moved a two-ton stone. Like, come on, right? Think about the foolishness of this. Because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is what happens. You have, to, you have to stretch yourself to ignore the truth because you know what it confronts in your life. Do you know what I'm saying? So you've got to come up with all these theories. Swoon theory. Twin Messiah theory. I'm not even going to explain that one. It, wasn't, it, was a, it was just Jesus had a secret twin the whole time. 
Okay, it's like a Disney Channel original movie, but with Jesus, okay? <laughs> wrong tomb theory. Everybody went to the wrong tomb. Well, then where's the tomb? The right tomb. So you, all you have is these explanations away from what happened. So um, here's what I want to tell you. Jesus' tomb is empty, and it has been empty for 2,000 years. Can I tell you why? Jesus doesn't need his tomb. He's alive. He rose. And this is what propelled the, propelled the faith. Look at this next one. You also have, beyond the empty tomb, amen, you also have, you have eyewitness testimonies. You have eyewitness testimonies. Not just that the tomb was empty, but you also have eyewitness, you have the empty tomb, and you also have different eyewitness testimonies. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. We read this, that after he rose, he was seen. People saw him. People saw him alive, and he wasn't in the same body or state that he was on the cross. He was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over, look at this, 500 brethren of once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some had fallen asleep. So notice this, you have eyewitnesses. Now, this is so important, because if all you have is an empty tomb, but you don't have any eyewitnesses, I mean, all you have is theories, right? Because nobody actually saw him alive. Now, on the other hand, if all you have is, we saw him, but he's in the tomb, it's like, you're crazy, okay? But what you have here in the historic account is you have an empty tomb, and you have multiple upwards of 500 people. That's way more than what we have in this room right now. If we all together at once saw the risen Jesus, that's pretty good support for the fact that we saw it. And people would have to believe us. This is incredible evidence that there were these eyewitness testimonies all claiming, listen, all claiming the same thing. And I want to say that this is what led, by the way, this is what led to the birth of the church. Hundreds of people seeing Jesus alive. Like one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection is that after 12 disciples run and hide, somehow they go from running and hiding to being an army of disciples. What happened? And then the Pentecost comes and the church is born. Because they saw Jesus. Over, I love this. Over 500 brethren at once. I love this. Uh, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Paul's like, you know Bill that comes to the 9 a.m.? Bill, ask, he was there. The guy that does the coffee? That guy. He was there. Like, there, there are, you can ask them. You can ask them. Now, here, here's the big idea that I want you to understand about the resurrection. Historically, Christianity didn't start the belief in Jesus' resurrection. The belief in Jesus' resurrection started Christianity. Well, you know, I just think it's, you know, what it was was the disciples, they wanted control. They wanted religious control. And so they made up the story. I guess 500 other people all agreed to make up for the same story and then die for their claim. Okay, but... They just wanted control. Now, if, if that's the truth, um, here's something I, I want to point out, something pretty interesting about this. Paul says here that the first witness of the resurrection is Peter. He, 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 he lists him first, that he was seen by Cephas. But when you read the gospel accounts, you know that there was actually a couple witnesses that beat Peter and John to the tomb. John beat Peter to the tomb. Actually, John tells us he outran him. But even before John beat Peter, there were two, what? Two women bringing spices, bringing a memoriam, 
grieving the loss of Jesus. And these are, listen, these are the first two humans and people that Jesus appears to. And they're the, this is pretty cool, they're the first evangelists. They're the first two individuals that Jesus sends out to proclaim the good news that he's alive. Okay. In that culture, a woman's testimony had zero credibility in the court of law. It was a misogynistic culture. So first of all, you see Jesus dignifying women and saying, hey, may the gospel be on your lips, and girl, may you preach it. May you be bold. May you, may you run in what God's called you to do to make him known to the world. Yet also you see a culture at that time that was completely bent away from the dignity of women. It was a misogynistic culture. Here is a reading from the Mishnah, which is an authoritative Jewish text of that time. Here's what it said about people that you shouldn't trust. This is one of the greatest things I've ever read, by the way. Be, not because of the women part. That's horrible. I, okay, I'm, I'm with you ladies. But listen to this. These, this is from that century. This is how messed up those people were. These are considered unfit witnesses. Gamblers with dice. Those that lend with interest. Pigeon racers. You know, growing up, my dad always said, never trust a pigeon racer. All right. Those who trade in the produce of the sabbatical year and slaves. This is the rule. All testimony that a woman is not fit to give, these above are also not fit to give. So, by the way, this is horrible, okay? And this is the culture. So, let me ask you a question. If you're going to start a movement where you have power and the, and the basis of the movement is you got to come up with a story about your Savior who died, that he's still alive... You would never in a million years say, here's how we'll start the story. The first people he appeared to were women. In that culture, that's ridiculous. Listen, the only reason why the gospel would include that Jesus first appeared to women, listen, is because maybe it did. Maybe he did. Maybe that's how it happened. That's why that would be included. This idea that it's fabricated for power and control is really just, listen to this, ignorant. And it's easy to nix the Christian faith, as Tim Keller says, because you don't like the teachings, you don't like the followers. Here's the question, did it happen? And are you running from that truth? Are you at least investigating that truth? Now, you can go through the list. I mean, Peter, what a great example. How Peter, who is timid and scared and denying Jesus, he then is standing up at, at Pentecost preaching Jesus boldly to the crowds that are around him. Here's a great evidence for the resurrection. I love that Jesus especially was like, I got to go show up to my brother and be like, I told you. When Jesus was alive, his brother, you know, did not believe a single word about him being the Messiah. He was a skeptic. They thought Jesus, we studied this in Mark a couple weeks ago. You remember this? They thought Jesus was out of his mind. They were trying to restrain him because of the crowds he was drawing. So Jesus goes, here will be the greatest evidence of, of my resurrection. My own brother will become my servant, and I will be his Lord, and he will go from scoffing at me to worshiping me. He'll, he will go at re from rejecting me to bowing his knee to me because I am the king. James, and then Paul says, maybe the greatest evidence of all, the apostle Paul. Last of all, Paul says, he was seen by me as I was knocked off my high horse on the way to Damascus. 
I wasn't a part of that early group of witnesses, but in Jesus' perfect time, he revealed himself to me. As not just a figure from, the his, from history, not just a figure from past, but the Apostle Paul's life was changed when he encountered Jesus as present and real. Changed everything. Changed everything for me when I was 18 years old. I went from Jesus as a concept to Jesus as a reality. It'll change your life too. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, he gives us our last one, and I'll bring the team up to close this out here. The Apostle Paul is the first of many in an enduring tradition of the Christian faith. That unlikely individuals who want nothing to do with God are heaven-bound, saved, redeemed, and forgiven. The Apostle Paul, he says about himself, we read this, Paul says, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy to be an apostle. You look at Paul's life, Paul was an, an enemy of Jesus. Paul was the enemy. He wanted nothing to do with God. He was trying to snuff out the Christian movement himself. All these people, I mean, Christianity was just blowing up because of this, this reality of the resurrection. And Paul was trying to snuff it out. And even the very enemies of God, the Bible says this, that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And even, that, even while we are yet enemies and sinners, Christ dies for us. See, our default as humanity is to be an enemy of God. When I say enemy, I mean you turn your back on him, the creator of heaven and earth, the one that made you, knows you, and loves you, made you for a purpose, knows who you are, knows what what true life is found. And the nature of humanity is to turn away from God and be opposed to him rather than be in unity with him. That's called sin. It's the fall of man. Paul is an example of a long line of tradition That despite who we are, despite what we've done, there's this incredible thing that God gives us called grace. Where he says, listen, this has nothing to do with your behavior. What you've done, how you've been lovable, how you've earned me. This has to do with the fact that I love you more than you could ever imagine. And I love you as you are right now. I know what you've been through. I know the hurt you feel. I know the, the mistakes you've made. And I put every single one on my son on the cross. So that I could shower your life with my love and grace. So I could fill you with purpose. So I could, I could pour out my spirit upon your life and lead you to the life you were created for. It's called grace. It's a, it's a waterfall. It's not something we produce. It's, it's something we come under and receive because of God's goodness and God's heart. Uh, can I tell you? Um, if you were to come up to me and say, Andrew, what is the greatest evidence that you have in your life to the resurrection? I would say, Jesus changed my life. He changed my life. He changed my life right when I knew, right when he knew I needed my life to be changed, right before my mom would pass away, right before I would enter into a season of life that I would never have known how to navigate, that I still am still trying to figure it out. How do I know Jesus lives? The classic saying says, I know because he lives in me. And he's been faithful to pursue me. And he's been gracious towards me. Yeah, I have all the historic evidence, but the step that takes us next is saying, Jesus, I want to know you in a real and personal way. I want to know that you're alive by experiencing your love. So my question to you today is, have you known Jesus that way? Do you know about the reality of the resurrection because you know the person of Jesus who's alive right now? That same Jesus who took your, took your sin upon the cross, who has life for you? We want to reflect on that. 
Uh, wherever you're at in this, listen, you, you might be the skeptic. And, and really for you today, all you need to do is really think about what the offer is here. And maybe the next few months, you just commit to saying, you know what, Jesus, you've offered a lot. I just want to look into it. Maybe you, maybe you face some honest reasons why you aren't even looking into it, why you're rejecting the Lord. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's you don't like Christians. That's okay. Christianity is not about Christians. It's about Jesus and the fact that he rose. So center your heart on that. Maybe that's where this kick starts. That, that, that question we asked in the beginning, did the resurrection happen or not? Maybe you're here today and you're right at that point where you know, I am I'm ready to be saved. I'm ready to receive all that the cross did for me. I'm ready to be saved by this risen Savior. I'm ready to have the life that he promises. Well, Scripture makes it really simple. Romans 10, 9. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that he is Lord and that you need him, you confess your need to him, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved if you hold on, if you're good enough. No, no, no. You will be saved by Jesus. Jesus is a better Savior than we are sinners. 